We find ourselves in chapter six. We're in the real, the heartbeat of uh, the book of Romans. This is the most exciting chapters to me, you know, chapter six through eight here. Uh, we're going to read verses one through 11 here this morning. I titled this morning's message, Knowledge is Power. We probably all have heard that expression, right? Knowledge is power. And Paul is really talking about three things. If you're a note taker, three things that we need to know. It's really the key word there is know, that we need to know certain things. And if we know these things, I mean, we know that we know that we know that we are convinced of them. Uh, they won't just impact, but they will They will literally change our lives. And so it's a, it's an exciting portion of scripture to read and to study together. We'll read verses one through 11, and then we'll take a moment and pray. And just be reminded, again, I'm reading from the NLT, uh, New Living Translation. And I switched over to that around the first of uh, the year here and uh, appreciate the the thoughts and and notes and comments uh, that I've received from many of you that have made that some of you actually way ahead of me because I, I, I started dabbling with it a couple of years ago and just felt like it wasn't the time that the Lord would have us make that that transition but uh, some of you already did and so you were excited anyway and uh, and I just appreciate uh, your thoughts on it because you know one of the things about the NLT is it's a great translation um, to help people who have never had any background whatsoever uh, with God um, to be able to read a Bible and understand it. And from a teacher's perspective, that, that's what you want. You want people to be able to read it and to comprehend it and to understand it. It doesn't do any good to go, thou us, thus, theus, thyest, though, you know, and, and to think that, you know, there's something spiritual to that. That was the language of the day. It's not common any longer. We don't speak like that, or at least if you do, nobody's listening. Um, you know, so again, we try to try to teach in a way that it's a language that people can comprehend and understand. And, and there's many great translations out there. People have asked me you know, as well, and I still continue to tell you the best translation is the one that you'll read and you'll read it again and again and again. Whatever brings you back to loving Jesus and wanting to know more about him, that's the best translation. So we'll read this together and then we'll pray. It says in verse one, chapter six of Romans, it says, well then, should we keep on sinning? It's a rhetorical question <clears throat> that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace. Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Jesus Christ in baptism, we joined him in his death. For we died and we were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead, and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin, but now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we look forward to what you have for us today. Thank you that, Lord, you have something as Larry was praying and, and, and worship. God, you have something for each of us today. This isn't just something that was stated 2,000 years ago, but your word is a living word. It's active. And so, Lord, I pray that we would have 
ears to hear, Lord, what the Holy Spirit would, would speak to us today. And that, God, it would change us, Lord. It would change the way that we think and how we feel and how we act and how we respond, not only to you, but to the world around us. And so, Holy Spirit, thank you. Thank you for the power to live victorious lives. May you teach us today all that you have for us. And may Jesus be glorified in our lives as we would go from this place today. We ask these things today in the wonderful name of our Savior. As we pray, we all agreed this morning saying amen. Amen. So, you know, looking back, you know, chapters one through five, if you've been with us, you know, dealt with the, the concept of justification and justification in the truest things mean, means what? Just as if I'd never sinned. Yeah, it's positional. It's a positional place that we have in Christ. Chapter six through eight focuses on our sanctification. And the word sanctification simply means set apart. So our position in Christ is, you know, that that's secure, our sanctification, that's an ongoing process that will ultimately lead to the third aspect is glorification. We are already, the Bible says, seated in the heavenly places, glorified in Christ, but yet we haven't realized that yet. Remember, God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He sees everything as completed already, yet we don't. We're still looking forward. And so chapters one through five, as we were studying, you know, we came to understand that we were dead in our sins, okay? That, there's a big difference there. And chapters six through eight uh, teaches us that we are not dead in our sin, but we are dead to sin, that there's a power that's available to us to live a victorious life in Jesus Christ. And we'll be talking about that today. Chapters one through five, um, you know, we learned that we were free from the penalty of sin. That's what, when Jesus died on the cross, he set us free from the penalty of sin. In chapters 6 through 8, though, what we begin to discover is that we were free from the power of sin. So not only we've been saved from the penalty of sin when Jesus died, but now we have been, again, saved and, and set free from the power of sin in our life, meaning that we can live with victory over sin in our life. And yet, you know, we still struggle with that, and we'll talk about that over the next few weeks here in chapters 6, 7, and 8. Paul really brings this out. To, to bring a, a greater awareness to us as to how we move forward in victory. In chapters one through five, uh, you know, we see that, uh, and Paul was teaching that we were saved apart from works. And then in chapters six through eight, we were saved not just apart from works, but we're saved unto, you could say, good works that uh, we're able to perform because of our relationship in Christ Jesus. And, and it really comes down to a you know, what the title of it is. It, it comes down to the understanding that knowledge is power. The more that you know God, I shared with you, and again, I will always take you back to this. You know, we, we talk about the Lord's prayer, you know, our father who art in heaven, but that's really our prayer. The Lord's prayer, as I always remind you, is John chapter 17, because that's when Jesus is praying for us. He's praying for the church. And, and his prayer is that you and I would know. He wants us to know God. He wants us to know God in a personal way. He wants us to know God in a practical way. He wants us to know God in an experiential ways to know God. Thus, the title, Knowledge is Power. It comes from knowing God. You ever been on, in a situation where, you know, that expression, if I only knew then what I know now, you know, you, you came to know something, you know, later that you wish you would have known earlier. One of the, the most hilarious examples of that in my life was when my wife and I had the opportunity to go on a cruise for the very first time. And uh, 
I don't know how we even got this this trip, but it was it was just you know we had an interior cabin. It was near the steam room and the engines, so we got it as cheap as you could possibly get it. You know, I mean, they even tell you all this got asterisks by everything, stinks by this room, really tight quarters. Everybody gets seasick on this level, but you go, hey, but we're on this ship, right? And uh, so Lee and I were thinking, okay, this we're gonna have to do this on a shoestring budget. So so my wife goes shopping and she buys like, I mean, anybody remember space food sticks? You know, I mean, anybody that old in here, you remember those things from like the seventies, you know, cause the astronauts ate them, right? You know, most terrible thing, you know, they had those like at the dollar store at that time. So we buy a bunch of space food sticks and, and uh, those, you know, granola bars and, and I mean, anything that was cheap, you know, uh, I mean, ramen noodles. I mean, anything that, you know, you could just, and, and Lee loaded up this whole suitcase. I mean, it was an entire suitcase of food for a week. You got to understand, we're going to be on a cruise ship for a week. So we got that, we've got, you know, her 12 pieces of luggage, my one piece of luggage, and then we've got the, we've got the food. And uh, so we're taking this, you know, onto the, onto the ship and then you got to pay them for everything. You know, you got to give them a tip for like every piece of luggage. We didn't know that. So we get to our room and so we're unpacking our stuff. And so I'm looking through, and she's done good. I mean, there's like, she's got it all organized and stuff like Monday's candy, you know, Tuesday's food, Wednesday, all the, I mean, big old suitcase. And uh, so she decides though, she says, you know, honey, I'm, I kind of like, like a, a hamburger or something, French fries. I'm just really having a craving for like French fries. So I, I look on the menu and there's no prices on the menu at all. I'm like, great. So she says, well, just call them and ask them. So I call down, I pick up the phone, I dial the number. I said, hey, I said, we're room, you know, whatever. And he's like, we know what room you are. You know, I'm like, okay. You know, and uh, I said, hey, I said, um, how do I even say this? I go, um, how much is a hamburger and fries? I said, I can't find a price on here. And, you know, we don't have much money. And he goes, sir, it's all included. I said, what? And he goes, it, you paid once you pay, you get on the ship, everything's included. I go, everything's included. I don't have to pay for it. I go, I could order. He goes, sir, if you'd like, I, I don't suggest you do this, but sir, if you like, you order everything on the menu. We bring it to your room. You not eat it all. Just put it outside on the plate and we take it away. I mean, I like, let out, like I'm looking at Lee. She's looking at me. We were like, yes. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, we ate breakfast. We ate lunch. We ate dinner. We went to the midnight buffet until like, what was it, honey? We did it for like two days and we were, we couldn't even go the third night. We were just like, forget it. We don't care anymore. You'd only see so many ice sculptures, you know, but it was that thing of knowledge is power, right? I mean, we felt so stupid. They're laughing at us. We got, they're like, what are these people doing? I mean, you eat, you know, I mean, it's terrible the amount of food. It's just, they should call it gluttony cruise lines or because it just, it really is. But, you know, it's just one of those things. But but it was just, I always think back that if I, if I had only known, you know, I, I, I love American Express, you know, and uh, American Express has, you know, it says membership has its what? Privileges, right? There's a privilege. There's certain things. And I, I would be at the airport. We, we were flying to Israel one year and, and, uh, so I'm at the airport. I'm just like dead tired. And so I see this, this lounge and it says American Express. And so I, I go to the lounge and I'm going, hey, I go, you know, what does it take to, 
to go to this to this lounge, and they said, "Oh, uh, you have to be a platinum card holder." And I don't know platinum card holder. What's a platinum card holder? She says, "What card do you have?" And I said, "I got this one." She goes, "You have a platinum card," and I like really. And I go, <laughs> I go. What does that mean? And she goes, "That means you can be in here." And I go. She goes, how long have you had it? And I go, I've had it for a number of years. And I go, this isn't the first time I've... She goes, well, you have really been missing out. I mean, and I just thought back to laying on the airport floor, right? You're just laying there. You're, between, you're trying to get comfortable. Have you ever laid down in an airport? You know, you're trying to get comfortable there. Well, you go into the lounge. They've got like little quiet areas with little, you know, like they're like sofas, but they got pillows. They have showers. You can take a shower in there. And uh, she's like, sir do you not watch the commercials? And I'm like, what? And she goes, membership has its privileges. And I'm like, and my, what do you think my response to her was? I didn't know. I didn't know. And she goes, you didn't know because you didn't what? You didn't read. I'm like, you're right. I didn't read it. And she, so she starts laying out all the things for me. And, and I'm thinking this card, you know, it does cost a little bit more. You go, but if you think of all the benefits that are with it, there's no comparison. It, it's just like, it's like the time my wife and I, we, we took a train to, from Los Angeles to Texas. And I, I shared this story with you. My wife's going, you know, it'll be, it'll be fun. We're going to go from, you know, LA to Dallas and it takes three days. And we're sitting there in the, air, in the train station. And, and I said, so I'd not really thought about it because I just let her plan it, you know. And, and so I'm sitting there and she goes, yeah, they're just like these seats right here. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, I have to sit like this for three days? And she goes, I told you. And I said, well, honey, I'll tell you what, um, you can take the train. I'm getting a taxi and going to the airport. I'll pick you up. There's no way I am sitting in this seat like this. And it was the exact same seat as on the train for three days. I go, there's no way. I go, I will die. And, and she's like, well, honey, that's how it is. So I go to the, the, the guy and I said, hey, you got any other things like where you can, he goes, well, all we have is first class, but there's none available. And he goes, you can check back. And I kept checking back and checking back and checking back. And when the train pulled in, I just happened to be walking past it. And I said, you got any? And he goes, yeah, we have one came open. I said, I'll take it. And he goes, do you want to know how much it is? I, go, I don't care how much it is. I go, I'm not sitting in that, in that seat for three days. So it was $250. And I thought, wow, the, the ticket was only like 75 or something like that. So we get on the, on the train and we go there and we get into the, it's a little, you know, uh, room that you can stay. So then we go to the, the dining cart and you sit down, same type of thing. There's no, there's no prices on anything. So I call a guy over and I go, sir, I go, could you tell me the, the prices? I go, I don't know anything. And he goes, sir, it's included first class. And I go, wait a second. I go, so I can have breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and it's all included. And he goes, yeah. And I go, why didn't everybody go first class? Then I go, because if you add the food that you'd buy on the train, plus the room, I go, it's like, $400. I go, it's only $250. And he goes, I don't know. And I go, and I told him, I was like, wow, Lee. I go, again, what does it come down to? Knowledge. Knowledge is power just because we don't pay attention to things. You know, um, we got a, a, well, I would say we, you know, I'm going to take full credit for this one. My wife's going to get all the credit when, when the kids come over, but, but I bought a Cuisinart soft serve ice cream machine for my grandchildren. You know, just, you know, but it has three little things that, you know, you can drop, you know, like sprinkles and stuff into it that, and it mixes it in with the thing. So I'm taking pictures of that because it was like 80 bucks. And it, and it said, you know, it was like 250 bucks and the thing said 80% off. And I go, wow. So I looked it up 
And it said it was the best one that was available. So I was thinking, this thing, this thing is great. So it got here. So I'm putting it together last night. And my wife starts scolding me. She's looking, she goes, are you going to read the instructions? And I said, no, I'm looking at the picture on the box. And she goes, well, you need to read the instructions. And I go, no, I just need to look at the picture on the box. Because there's like five pictures. And I'm thinking, if I can make it look like that, then, and you know what? And as a man, I, I felt pretty good. I had three parts left over. I was thinking, they, you don't need all these parts, obviously, to make this thing work, right? And all the men said, amen. You know, no, I didn't. I, I got it. I got it put together. But, but my wife is really good about that. She'll go, you know what? I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read. I'm going to read everything. Uh, we're taking the kids to get ice cream on, on Friday, some of our grandkids anyway. And they're talking to Oma, you know, about the car. And they're like, all the buttons that are on in her car. They're like, Oma, that's too many buttons. Too many buttons. And Oma says, well, I, I read the manual first. You know, which is, there's things I get in there and I go, what does this do? <laughs> I, I just press stuff, you know, all of a sudden the roof comes open, you know, you know <laughs> sorry, <laughs> but, but knowledge is power. And, and one of the saddest things, you know, there is a, a Bible literacy, Ill, illiteracy, you could, you could say, you know, people come to church, they go, Hey, I'll listen, you know, and stuff, but you go, but to, but to read the Bible and, and understand it and know it. And, and experience the, the freedom that God wants us to experience. That only can happen. It's not just a head knowledge, right? It, it's an experiential knowledge as we walk with God and as we experience in Him in our, in our lives on a day-to-day -day, uh, you know, uh, relationship. You know, when I read Romans chapter 6, it always reminds me of uh, going back to the time of the Civil War. And you remember the Civil War, obviously, it was a war between the North and the South over slavery, right? And Abraham Lincoln was the president in September. He makes a proclamation, but on January 1st, uh, 1863, he signs the Emancipation Proclamation that slaves were, were in the South were set free. And, and it was interesting because though the slaves were set free, they struggled with understanding what freedom was because many were generational uh, slaves. They'd been slaves in their family for three, four generations, right? They had a master who had abused them physically and verbally. And then you had uh, a president, you know, and you had some that were saying that, no, you, you know, all men are created equal and, and you have the same freedom as, as, as your, your white slave owner. And that was just something that, you know, some people could comprehend it. And when they did, what did they do? They experienced that freedom and they went on and they prospered. But there were many slaves that could never break free from the bondage of that slavery. Even though they were told, you could say, even though positionally under the law, they were free. But practically because of their history. And I think that that, that is such a, a, a great picture, though, you know, we might not, most of us here obviously comprehend slavery to that degree. We do understand slavery in a spiritual sense, you know, to understand positionally that all of us know that we've been set free, but practically speaking, how, how do I work that into my life? That God has declared it just like Abraham Lincoln, you know, signs of emancipation, God declared it and he delivered it in sending forth his own son to die upon a cross and to be buried and rise again, that we are free because of Jesus, but then to practically live that out. And so Paul really begins to address that here, you know, in chapter six. And again, like I said, the more, you know, we know, 
you could say the more power we possess. And, and again, what's true, like I said, in, in secular education is obviously true in the spiritual realm. And, the, and again, go back and, and read it for yourself, John chapter 17. That's why Jesus was praying, Father, they might know you. Not just a head knowledge, but like I said, an experiential knowledge. Because the truth be told, it's very difficult to grow beyond your knowledge of God. You won't. What you think about God is the most important thing about yourself. What you think about God is the most important thing about yourself. And so here in chapter 6, the Apostle Paul wants us to understand and have a knowledge of sin. He wants us to understand, you know, uh, what sin is all about. Because obviously it plays a major role in all of our lives, the impact that it has. And so Paul asked this question. Like I said, it's a rhetorical question there in verse 1 and how we deal with sin. He says, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? So, you know, you think about this for a second. You know, we all have a position on sin, right? Every one of us has a position. I love as a pastor to get to talk with people and listen to people explain to me their positions on sin. Uh, because they, whether they're in the church or outside of the church, there is a full gamut <laughs> of positions. The majority of people, if you had to, there's probably four positions here that, you know, we could, we could look at. The majority of people, you, we would probably call them as Paul did, is they're considered moralist, right? A moralist, somebody who has a standard uh, in and of themselves, right? They'll say things like, you ever met somebody who says, I live by the Ten Commandments. And you go, really? Wow. Okay. And they'll say that, you know, or they go, I live by the golden rule, right? Have you ever, you ever, some of us have said that, right? And you go, I wish, you know, some, some even say, you know, uh, me and Jesus, we have a, uh, a thing, right? We have an agreement. Like me and Jesus said, out, we cut our own covenant. You know, we go, we got, we have our, our own pact, you know, that we've come up with. Jesus is all right with me. Isn't there a song about that, you know, or something? Yeah. Um, you know, other people will say, you know, I, I just believe, you know, do unto others before they do it to you. No, that, that, no, I'm sorry. That's not, <laughs> that's what I thought, but that's not how it goes. It was do unto others that what you would want them to do to you, right? That was the proper code. But some people would go, you know, yeah, uh, do it to me once, you know, shame on, on, you know, you do it to me twice, shame on me. Um, and then there's legalists, you know. If they're not moralists, they're probably the second, they're, they're legalists. They, they, they're saved, I mean, legalists. They, they, they believe Jesus died on the cross, and they understand their need of accepting him as Savior and Lord. But from that moment on, man, it's a measuring stick, isn't it? I mean, their life, and it's, it's such a downer when you meet somebody like this, because their idea of, of Christianity is not what we do, it's what we don't do, Right? We don't drink, we don't smoke, we don't chew, we don't go out with girls that do, you know, whatever that, that old expression, you know, was at that point. But we, we, you know, there's certain movies that we won't see. Christians don't see these movies, you know. And if you really went by that standard, you can't even go to a G-rated movie anymore. I mean, in the true sense, because who sets the standard? The world does, right? I mean, and we look at this, you go, what was considered, you know, an X-rated movie, you know, back in the 60s? is a PG movie, you know, now, you know, that even, you know, children are, are, you know, suggested to even watch. And so, you know, we can't get our standards from the world, but there's legalists that, that that's how, that's how they look at their life. And, and it's sad because again, you know, sin is their idea 
uh, it's on their, their list of their code, you know, things that they would consider sinful. And that they think that they're, they're righteous if they don't do the things that are on their list, right? And I think we can all relate to that, but unfortunately, it's not true because legalism doesn't deal with what? Internal sin. Legalism only deals with external sin. And, and that's what people go, oh, I don't do this, I don't do this, you know, but who you really are is who you are when what? When nobody's looking, right? And so the apostle Paul, I mean, obviously in his own life, he understood that the sin of covetousness was the greatest sin because it revealed that he was a breaker of the law of every other sin, right? And again, it's not someone who just breaks the law outwardly, but does it inwardly. Uh, Psalm 55, 21 puts it like this. His words are as smooth as butter, but in his heart is war. His words are as soothing as lotion, but underneath are daggers. What is that saying? Oh, outwardly looks great. That's what the legalist does. And that could be a he or a she. You'd look at their life and you go, oh, they're, they're, but you'd look at, man, if you could see their heart, if you knew what was going on on the inside. And that's what Jesus went after with the Pharisees, right? He said, you who what? Who look upon a woman with lust in your eyes or a woman who looks upon a man with lust. He says, you basically, you've done what? You've committed adultery, right? Yeah. He goes, you that you call, you know, I mean, not that he would do this. How many have driver's license in here? Raise your hand. You have a driver's license? Yeah. You, you're on the road. You would never say, you fool, you idiot, you know, you, you know, and Jesus goes, ha, raka, you know, and you go, as soon as you say that, what is Jesus doing? <gasps> That's a sin you're You're going, you murderer. You know, I didn't really mean it. Mm, maybe you did. You know, there, there's been studies done, you know, the, of people they've asked, you know, an overwhelming majority of people, if you could murder somebody and get away with it, would you commit murder? And it's a large percentage of people go, yeah, I would. I mean, they go, why don't you do it? Because I don't want to go to jail. You know, I mean, I want to get caught. But if you're telling me that I could do it and not get caught, you go, wow, sinners. Man. Yeah, you can behave outwardly, but be a sinner inwardly. Do you, do you get that? Yeah, that, that's what a legalist is. Maybe the, the thing that the church gets accused of probably more than anything is what we would all call cheap grace, right? That, that's the struggle here that is being made against the Apostle Paul. I mean, you think about it, you go, where sin abounds, what? You know, grace does all the more, right? Many teachers throughout the centuries have said, well, hey, what we should do then is if we want to demonstrate how awesome God is, what should we do as believers? We should sin more, right? Because where sin abounds, grace does all the more. And if we want to show how really good God is, then what do we need to do? We need to demonstrate how bad we really are. And believe it or not, that was a predominant thought for a couple centuries in the early church. And you go, wow, talk about sin and debauchery, you know, advancing. And yet that's not what God has said at all. You know, what is Paul? He's reminding us. You know, just because we've been set free, we're not free in that respect just to go back and sin, but we're free to not sin. That's what he's, that's what he's drawing out. It isn't cheap grace. And really in the true sense, can grace ever be cheap? And you go, no, because what did it cost God? It cost him his son. The price that was paid, that's what Peter writes. Say, we weren't purchased with silver and gold. There's no amount of money that, that could pay the price for 
what Jesus did for me and for you on the cross when he shed his own blood on Calvary's cross. And that says something of your worth to God, how much you're worth to him, that he would give his very life for you. But no, what, what really, when you think about our thoughts about sin and when you think about our position and how we, we view sin, it should be this. There's number four here, it should be dead to sin. Dead to sin. Knowing our position in Christ. This is where it comes back to knowledge is power. If we really understood what the Apostle Paul, and really in, in one sense we can't. It's just so, so deep. But we can scratch the surface of it. We can get a concept, an idea of it, that we are dead to sin. That a, that a believer, that a Christian, is somebody who has died to sin. And you think, but, but how, do we, how, do we, how do we deal with it? We have to know something. We have to know what God says. When the, when the Bible uses that word reckon, you know, like when you hear the word reckon, what do you normally think of? Somebody in the South, well, I reckon, you know, I, and what is that? We go, I guess, right? And we look at that and we go, oh, no, 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 no. That's not the biblical word reckon. When, when you hear the word reckon in scripture, what it's saying, it says add it up. It's an accounting term. It means add it up, add it up, and it'll bring you to the same conclusion as God. And so he says, reckon, reckon the old man dead. Come to the same understanding, the same belief that God has about this, and it'll change your life. When you see yourself, finally, you know, as God sees you, as you see and understand your position in Christ, it will change your life dramatically. Verse 2 goes on there. It says, you know, Paul says, of course not. He says, when dealing and talking about sin, should we continue in sin? He goes, of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Okay? When you think about it, we're dead to sin. The, the, the key to our victory, like I said, is the knowledge of God. So he, he reminds us that we can't continue in sin because we've died to it. Again, it's a positional truth here. When Jesus died to sin, he didn't just die as our representative. He died also as our substitute. Okay? He didn't just represent us. He died in our place. So our, it, again, we talk about the concept of what? Double jeopardy. You can't be tried twice for the same crime. If Jesus died for you and he died as your substitute, he died in your place, can you legally be tried for your crime? No, because the death penalty was rendered. The death penalty was paid. Jesus paid the price for you. Even in our court of law, you know, you know I see it spiritually. No, in our court of law, it's called double jeopardy. You cannot be tried twice for the same crime crime. And since if you're in Christ Jesus and he died for you, you now are free. Did he, somebody died. Somebody had to die. Scripture says, for the wages of sin is what? Death. Somebody had to die for your sin. You can die for your own sin. You know, I love that old expression, you know, die once, live twice, right? Or live once and die twice. You know, you can live a life without God and you're going to die twice. You're going to die a, a, a physical death and a spiritual death. Or you can render your, yourself in Christ Jesus and you identify with him. You die once and then you live twice. You not only live physically, but you live eternally with the Lord spiritually. And so Paul recognizes when, when Jesus died, we died. And that's the position that we take in water baptism. I heard, I think it was Jason yesterday, we were talking about water baptism. And, you know, you ever, you know, when someone goes, like you'll see them, they're, they're 
parents are out there with their kids. Their kids are getting baptized, and they go, you know, they go, Pastor Mike. I go, yeah, and they go, hold them down a little bit longer, okay? Don't just let them ride up, you know? And you go, what are they? Well, they just need to make sure that they die to the old self, right? So, so you go, hey, your parents told us I got to hold you down a little bit. No, no. I go, no, we, we do. We're going to hold you down there. I'm not going to hold you too long. And, and there are people here. We have a couple nurses and PAs that they can revive you if something does, doesn't go as planned. And they're like, really? And I go, yeah, we've got to make sure. we just got to make sure, you know. Go, it, but it is symbolic, right? But you go, you go under that water identifying with his death. You know, Romans 6, 3, you know, it says, or have you forgotten that we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism? We joined him in his death. I, I like what the New King James in verse 3, because it uses the word know here. It says, or do you not know that as many as of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death? Again, he's talking about knowledge is power when we were baptized into his death, that we truly understand that. You know, that we look at that and we go, when I went under that water of baptism, when you went under that water of baptism, that signifies his death and our death, identifying with that. So you think about what took place at your baptism. See, a lot of people think that water baptism is unique to the church, but water baptism wasn't. The Jews were baptized in the Old Testament. See, when a proselyte, you know, would, would, would convert from being a Gentile to being a pagan, a heathen, to Judaism, they were baptized in water. I mean, they took it a lot. I mean, maybe, well, we probably shouldn't do this. It would get a lot of people probably arrested. But one of the things that they did to demonstrate this transformation, this identification that was taking place is they would literally strip down naked, okay? That, that would make people serious about their baptism, wouldn't you think? I mean, you know, I mean, it, it would. They would literally strip down naked and they would go into it because they were what they were doing was demonstrating that the old self, you know, they were they were being completely submersed, you know, immersed into this new life. And one of the interesting things, you know, about baptism, when you think about it, was they would go out into the water. It was always in a in a it was never in a lake. It was always in a place of running water because it was to signify, you know, living water. And so they would go out, they would go into this water. And they would go under this water. And as they would go under this water, there was a statement that was, was being made. They were renouncing. You could say they were renouncing their personal identity, that they were dying to themselves. And it's one of the struggles that people have with even coming to Christ as a, and becoming a believer. Is that, what do you mean? I have to lose my identity. And you go, yeah, <laughs> that's what Paul said. It's no longer I who lives, but what? Christ lives in me. It's my body but it's Jesus now living in me. So when you went in the water of baptism, this was serious business for the Jew. You were denouncing your identity. You were denouncing what? Your family. Think about this in the early church. It's where, you know, you think about families that, you know, they would, they would tear their clothing, right? They would rent their, their clothing. They would, and they would consider their family members as what? Dead. You know, that concept you hear it on shark tanks, you know, sometimes you're, you're dead to me, you know, you're dead to me. And you go, literally they were. And that, that was a dangerous thing. You know, when you think about an agri-society pretty much where you bartered and you traded for you to be ostracized and to put out, you know, but you think that was a dangerous thing. Left for dead, you could say. You were giving up then your family identity. You were also giving up your heritage. I mean, do you, you get the idea of what, what transpires in, in true baptism? 
that, that you, are, you are dying to you. You know, it was said during Desert Storm that when the chaplains would, would baptize the soldiers, the only thing that they could find to baptize them was a coffin. And they said, what a, what a, they said it was such a powerful statement because that's exactly what it is. It's a death to self. But most people, even Christians, don't want to die. They're thinking that somehow God, some way, is going to kind of like clean us up. You know, he's going to just, you know, it's me, but he's going to kind of polish me to, you know, to a certain degree here. And that's not the case at all. Uh, again, maybe the most important thing that they were saying is, I don't have a past. They were dying to their past. And that's probably one of the things that I've shared, you know, with you, you know, many times over the last year. It's one of the biggest struggles, you know, as a believer. In the truest sense, you don't have a past. You know, when, when, that's why when God, the, one of the most beautiful statements in the Old Testament, you know, when, when God speaks to Jeremiah, and remember the children of Israel, they're, they're in captivity at that point. He's telling them about the future. And he says, I know the thoughts I think towards you, says the Lord. He says, to what? He says, he says not to harm you, but to prosper you. And he didn't say to redeem your past, right? He said, but to give you what? A future and a hope. Because in the truest sense, you don't have a past. I don't have a past. All we have is a future in Christ Jesus because of everything that Paul is declaring here. But see, we like the past in the sense we, we like a part of who we were. And, this, and so, again, people will come to Christ. Like I said, they'll, they'll stand there and they'll say, you know, Pastor Mike, I mean, you know, do you realize this is what I used to do and this is what I used to do? And they're, they're actually glorifying it. And, and what Paul is drawing out here, he's going, no, when we identified with Christ, what we were saying is there's nothing in my flesh dwells what? No good thing. And that's such a struggle, you know, for people to comprehend and really to take to heart. Because like I said, they want to be able to say that there's, some, there's something redeemable in me. And you go, no, it's just a wrapper in the truest sense. You know, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So baptism signified a death of the old with no attachment to the past. So that when you came out of the water and I came out of the water, we come out of the water in what? The newness of life that's in Christ. A life that we have not experienced prior. It's something brand new. Old things, what, what did Paul say? My favorite verse in all of scripture, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if a person's in Christ, they what? They are a new creation. Behold, Old things have passed away, right? And behold, all things have become what? New. Everything's gone. Everything's new. And that's, that's true freedom, right? When you think about it, there's no attachment. There's, not, there's nothing to hold you back any longer. Because if you think about it today in honesty, you go, what's holding you back? It's not your future. It's your past. It's something that the, the enemy of your soul, it could be even something that was good that you just can't let go of, you know. I'm always thinking of that little girl who, you know, had the cheap dime store pearls, you know, and, and her dad kept trying to get them from her, you know, every night. And she, you know, got them for a quarter out of one of those machines and she just clutched them every night. And she loved them. And her dad would ask her every night, Susie, he says, do you love daddy? And she says, yeah. And she goes, would you give me your pearls? She goes, oh, no, daddy. No, no, no. And he would ask her every night and, and went on for like a week or so. And then finally he just didn't ask her anymore. And then she said to her daddy, she says, daddy, she said, are you going to ask me for my pearls? And he'd forgotten. He said, and he said, oh, yeah. He said, Susie, he goes, yeah. And he says, Susie, do you love me? And she goes, yeah. And he goes, more than the pearls? And, and she said, yeah, daddy. He goes, can I have your pearls? She said, yeah. So she hands her daddy the pearls. And he reached into his pocket 
and he had a you know a string of real pearls i mean that the truly a very expensive, you know, that you probably wouldn't want to give to a child, then gave those to her. And, and what's the thought? Is that, man, we're willing to hold on to a cheap dime store imitation of something where God is wanting to exchange that for something that's so real that, you know, again, as scripture says that our eyes haven't seen and our ears heard. It's beyond our comprehension what God has for us. But what does that take? It takes faith. And that's why Paul, when he, he talked about, you know, the transition in chapter four, how do we move from death into life? And we move the same way that Abraham does, by faith. You got to give it all up. That's what Abraham did. He wasn't baptized, right? But he said, you got to move away from what? Your family. You got to move away from your heritage. You got to move away from all these things. If you're going to end up where I want you, you're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to reckon. You're going to have to add it all up and then do what? By faith. We're not saved by works. We're saved by faith. We're justified. The just shall live by faith, trusting God. And that's hard to do because some of you, you know, you're really good at things that you do and you trust yourselves way more than you trust God. And it's sad because you'll never reach the place where God wants you to be until you die to yourself and you come out of the water of that baptism. And it's why people don't even want to get baptized in water. And they go, well, I don't have to be baptized to be saved. And you go, no, same way. I don't have to wear a wedding ring to signify that I'm married, but my wedding ring is an outward sign of what? An inward change. Water baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. Why wouldn't you? No, the thief on the cross wasn't baptized. So we, we can rest assured that, that salvation isn't by works. We're justified by what? By God's grace through faith. Trusting God. But has he called us to be baptized? Yes. And you think about it, if you love someone, I mean, I mean, wouldn't it seem strange? You go, I want to marry you. Uh, Lee would say, you know, and I'd say to her, yes, I want to marry you. And she says, but I don't want to wear your ring, Mike. I go, so she told me this before, I'd kind of like go, why? Well, I just don't want people to know that I'm married. I, I want to be married. I just don't want people to know that I'm married. And seriously, and it's like that, you know, well, uh, I believe, right? I, I don't go to church. You know, I don't go to Bible studies. I don't go to anything. But I, but I believe, right? Because I just don't want people to like, know that I believe. I have a cross, you know, I wear that, you know. And I thank God, you know, when I win. Not when I lose, but you know, I think you, you get the point. And Paul's going, no, see, we identify with both his death and also his life. Also his life. Baptism, you could say, is really for us, for the believer. It's our personal rejection of the world and its hold upon us. And us laying our hold upon Christ. It's why Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each of those gospels, he says, He's talking about this death in the true sense. He says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, right? And take up his cross and to follow me daily. In Luke 14, 25 and 26, Jesus would go on. He says, and now great multitudes went with him. And he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. You see the connection that he was making there in baptism for the Jew? Because that's who he was speaking to because they understood it. Baptism signified what? A rejection of, of family, that Jesus is more important, right? A rejection of their nationality, more than even being Jewish. You know, Jesus is, is greater. That's why scripture says to love God with all what? Your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Because if Jesus isn't first in your life, man, we're going to suffer. He's not going to suffer. I'm going to suffer because something else is going to become the master passion 
of my life. And what he was talking about was just that. What's the controlling factor of my life? If it's not Jesus, you're in trouble. I'm in trouble. Jesus, you could say, he's worthy of any price that it would cost us. Amen? Yeah. A man finds a pearl of great price. What does he do? He sells everything, you know, to, to purchase that field, to purchase that, that pearl. And that's what really ultimately it is with Christ. Whatever the cost would be, there's nothing. There's nothing. Even your life, he's saying. That's why Jesus would say, don't worry about those that can kill the body. And he said, but fear him rather who can what? Kill the body and the soul and cast them both into hell. Yeah, is fear God. Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31, it says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other greater commandment than these. So what am I doing at baptism? I'm accepting, you know, my my burial in Christ. He died as my representative. I, I'm identifying with him. He died in my place. He died so I don't have to. Amen? Praise God. Again, Romans 6, 3. Or have you forgotten that when you were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? Again, it's everything that took place on the cross when he died in our place. An outward sign of an inward change. Look down there in verse six, and it says, we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. You know, you want victory in your life? You must know what your baptism means. If you don't know what your baptism means, you will never experience victory in Christ. And you must know what your crucifixion is in Christ as well. If you don't know, you know, that you, that you're old, you think about your old nature, okay? There's a difference between the old nature and the flesh. And we're going to look at that over the next two weeks. Your old nature is, you know, who died with Christ, the, the old you. But you still have a flesh that still lives. That, that you could say your flesh is the impression of your old nature. How many are familiar with the, the concept of the term phantom pain? When someone is an amputee, right? This is the strangest thing. I visited people in the hospital that had a, a, a limb amputated. And they're in pain. They're going, oh, it's killing me. It's killing me. And you're, and you're going, what do you mean it's killing you? It was killing you. They cut it off. But they go, no, they can literally feel as if that, that limb is still there. And they go, it's not psychological. You know what they've determined through the years is that what? Now, it's a brain function. It's something to do with the brain and the spinal cord. There's, there's a sense within them that's telling them, you know, that, hey, this, is, this has been severed. Do you have an impression, you could say? You have a memory of something that was there, but it's no longer there. I think that's one of the best examples of the difference between the old nature, which has been severed. It's been crucified with Christ because you think, well, wait a second. If I've been crucified with Christ, why am I still struggling in sin? And then people go, I must not be saved. You ever thought that? You go, yeah. You go, but there's a difference between the flesh. You can read that Galatians chapter five. You want to study that for yourself. We'll get into that in the weeks ahead. I'm not going to cover it here today. But we have a flesh that, that remembers. I, I remember, how many have ever, have you ever moved? How many have ever lived in one house and then moved to another? You're here. You're, some people are in the same house that they always were. But I remember when Lee and I, we, we, 
we had the the joy of building one of our homes and uh we lived in it for a number of years and then uh, moved into where where we live now in my parents uh, home and uh and i remember for like for the first couple months after we moved i found myself going back to my old house one time i pulled up into the driveway and i'm like i was embarrassed i go oh my gosh you know and they had cameras out in front of the house and I, I'm like, I don't live here anymore, you know? I was thinking I would just walk in the house, sit down at the table, and hey, how are you guys? And I, and I kept doing it. I kept, I kept going back to my old house. And my wife again, they go, what are you doing? Because you know, you're just kind of like not thinking, you know, you're just kind of, mm, I'm thinking about something else. And she, she goes, honey, we don't, we, don't, we don't live there anymore, you know? I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, where are you going? And what is it? We'd say, I'm a creature of habit. You go, that's what it is. I don't live there anymore. I've, I've been crucified with Christ. My baptism signifies the death that I died with him. I identify with him. But I have a memory. You have a memory. You have an enemy of your soul that wants to go, no, 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 no. You know, this is how it is. This is how it is. But see, we don't have a past. We don't have an old life. That's the good news. We have a new identity. There's nothing to go back to. That, that's what Jesus would have you know today. There's nothing to go back to. If you've identified with him, you've come out of that water of baptism in him, literally, symbolically, there's nothing to go back to. That, that word in the Greek language, it's, it's katarigo, and it's translated there, this verse means destroyed, and it means to render inactive or paralyzed. It doesn't mean annihilated, which is interesting. So your old nature, it can yell at you, it can scream at you, it can get your attention. But at the cross, your old sinful nature became paralyzed. Meaning it can bark, but it can't what? It can't bite. It can't force you, you know? It can't make us, we can't say the devil made me do it. My problem, your problem is what? Memory, memory. And so what does Paul tell us to do? You wanna have victory? So you replace the old memories with new. Be not conformed. What does he tell us in Romans chapter 12? Be not conformed to this world, but what? Be changed, be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. Yeah. So that you might what? Prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God is. By what? Over and over. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Get in the word. Get in the word. Get the word into you. Get in the word. Let the word get into you. Let the word of God what? Dwell, dwell richly within us. Yeah. Again, verses nine through 11 finishes with this says, we are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin, but now he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. So we must know our baptism, we must know our crucifixion, and we must know our resurrection. We must know the new life. Those are the three things. Know our baptism, know our crucifixion, we must know our resurrection. There, I like what the New King James says in verse 11. It says, likewise, you also, again, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That word reckon again, you know, add it all up. Add it all up. Again, Believe what God says is true. Add it all up. Believe what God says to be true in your life. That, that's what it is to live a life of faith. Taking God at his word. Believing him. 
not trusting yourself. You know, what does Proverbs tell us? Lean not, what? On your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge him. And what will he do? He will direct your path. But what does that mean? That's like praying the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, how often do we pray that? Give us this day. No, why do I need God to give me? I can go out and work. I can go do it. Give, you know, I don't even think about that prayer, right? But you can see why Jesus told us to pray that prayer. Because what is it? It's about relinquishing control of our life. Oh yeah, oh yeah. My life is not my own any longer. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, as I shared with you a couple weeks ago, who I, who loved me. It's not just that he loves the world. It's not that he just loves the church, but he loves you. He loves you personally. He wants to lead you. He wants to guide. That's why he's given us the gift of the Holy Spirit, so that we can enjoy resurrected life. So how can we live in light of this life? See, one of the things that I love the most when I read the stories of Jesus, when he heals somebody, what did Jesus always say when he healed somebody? When Jesus healed somebody, what would he always say to them at the very end of it? Go and what? Go and what? Yeah. And you think, why would he say that, right? I mean, it just seems like, thanks a lot. It was really good until you said, go and sin no more. I mean, seriously. Why would he say that, though? Have you ever thought about that? And he's consistent, isn't he? He says, go and sin no more. Why would he say that? There's only one reason that he would say that. Can a non-believer go and sin no more? No, they can't. They can't stop sinning. They can't stop sinning. Who can stop sinning? Only somebody who's what? Been emancipated. Only someone who God says, you are free. Oh, you're free to go back just as Paul starts the chapter, right? Shall we continue in sin? He says, no, 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 no. But you're free to make that choice. And that's what we'll be getting into in the weeks ahead. You're free to make that choice. That's why Jesus said, go and sin no more. Because up to that point, they had no freedom. They had no liberty. They were stuck. They were in sin. And he did what? He healed them. He forgave them. He delivered them. And then he says to them, go and sin no more. What are you saying? Go enjoy the life that I have for you. Go and sin no more. And you think, wow, that's a choice that we get to make. Why? Because I'm no longer under the power of sin. I've died to sin. The power of sin has been broken in my life. It's been broken in your life. If you continue in sin and I continue in sin, you go, why? It's because we're listening to the wrong voice. You know, we're, we're listening to, you know, the old man, the old way. It has a voice, but it has no power. The power, the only power that it has is the power that I give it. It's the power that you give it. Because love demands a choice. And God in his love gives you and I the choice. A new life, you could say, and an old body. I want to take a, a moment and just read you this. this it, and it's just because I think it's important. Because who you are and who I am is who... Christ says that I am and who Christ says that you are. Because you have voices in your head just like I have voices in mine. Someone had sent this to me a long time ago and I just I copied it and put it in my, my notes. But I just wanted to read just the, the list of these things that were on this because these are just good to think about every once in a while. And it said this. It says, I am, I am unlovable, but God says I am loved forever. 
Now, there's verses of scripture that go with it, but I'm going to skip that today. I am, I am scared, but God says, I am healed. Oh, excuse me, I'm scarred. I'm scarred, but God says I'm healed. Verse, the third one was, I say I'm weak, but God says he makes me strong. I recognize that I'm a sinner, but God says I'm forgiven. I was abandoned, but God says I'm adopted. I say I am broken, but God says he makes me whole. And there's verses of scripture that go with each one of these. They're not just, you know, sweet little verses here. Thought. I have been rejected, but God says I am his. I say I am alone, but God says he's always with me. I say I'm hopeless, but God says because of him, I am hopeful. I say I'm purposeless, but God says I was created with purpose. I say I have failed, but God says I am victorious in Christ. I say I'm lost, but God says he gives me direction. I say I'm worried, anxious, or afraid, but God says that with him, I am peace-filled. I say I'm unhappy, but God says I am joy-filled. I say I'm afraid, but God says I am powerful, loved, and I have a sound mind. I say I am nothing special, but God says I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I say I'm worthless, but God says Jesus died because I am worth it. Those are just thoughts, you know, that, that are attached to scripture. And you think about, you know, do you know? Because it all comes down to knowledge is power. Do you, do you know those things to be true? You know, there's a battle, but the key is knowing. Knowledge is power. And that was his prayer, that we might know him, that we might know him in the power of his resurrection in our life. You know, so dig into the word. This is, these are great chapters here. And I think you start to understand like I do. You go, no wonder the book of Romans is tied to so much revival that takes place. I mean, how can you not get revived? You know, when you read such wonderful words like these, amen? Amen. Let's stand to our feet and we'll pray. Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for the book of Romans. And Lord, I pray that it would stir our hearts, that we would recognize today our position in Christ, that we would, that we would know it practically, that because uh, we identify with you and we've died with you, we've been set free from the penalty of sin. We've been set free from the power of sin to live a resurrected life, a glorious life. Your word says that you live for the glory of God. And now we have the ability to live for the glory of God too. And not because we have a strength in and of ourselves, because God, we recognize we don't. But what we do have is the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. And so Lord, help us to recognize that truth today. Greater is he who's in me than he who's in this world. And the victory is ours in Christ, as Paul would say, thanks be to God who gives us the victory it's not something that we earn. It's something that is given to us because Jesus secured the victory for us. And so, Lord, help us to, to live out your prayer for us this week. May we know you, Lord. May we know you better. May we know you deeper. May we know you more. For your glory, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Be blessed as you go. And you can give the Lord a clap offering. Amen. May the Bengals win today.